4: Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Inflation is much too high, and we understand the hardship it
5: is causing, and we're moving expeditiously to bring it back down. For the
6: first time since 2016, the Treasury Department is planning to pay down the national debt.
4: Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top name. It feels even better than I thought it would. Thank you all so
7: much. Fighting, biting, scratching, pinching, clawing. It's about economic freedom for them.
8: Trump said we've been winning so much we get tired of winning. Well, I'm tired of
4: our party losing. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
9: The Fed brings the biggest interest rate hike in 22 years as President Biden reveals a smaller deficit and the Trump brand remains a force on the campaign trail. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics with the latest on the war on inflation, we'll be joined in a moment by Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, member of the House Financial Services Committee. And later with Heather Boucher, we'll discuss the same from the White House Council of Economic Advisors, getting the view from the Democratic point of view, the administration and Republicans on the Hill. J.D. Vance wins the Republican Senate primary in Ohio. How about it? A convincing win. Thanks to Donald Trump. We'll discuss it. With Bloomberg's Mark Niket and with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeanne Shanzano and Rick Davis with us for the hour. Jay Powell, had asked about a possible 75 basis point move, not going to happen. Get used to 50 for the next couple of meetings. This after the president spoke a little bit earlier in the day about inflation, kind of, it's really deficit reduction that he was talking about calling again for Congress to raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy, to drive down the deficit, and speaking, in fact, about new numbers. Greater deficit reduction than first expected,
6: announced by the Treasury. I reduced the federal deficit. All the talk about the deficit from my Republican friends, I love it. I reduced it $350 billion in my first year in office. We're on track to reduce it by the end of September by another $1,500,000,000,000. The largest drop ever. I don't want to hear Republicans talk about deficits and their ultra MAGA agenda. I want to hear about fairness. I want to hear about decency. I want to hear about help on ordinary people.
9: This is where we begin with Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, a member of the House Financial Services Committee. A former banker himself, one of the Fed whisperers we rely on here at Bloomberg Radio. Congressman, welcome back. When you put all of this together, the Fed getting on board with the interest rate hikes that I know you wanted to see start earlier, a president who's trumping the idea, dare I say the word trumping, the idea of <laughs> deficit reduction, not a very sexy topic in the nation's capital. Can, should Americans feel like we're getting back on track here?
10: Boy, I don't know, Joe. I think if, he, if Joe Biden wanted to really help working Americans, he wouldn't have dumped another $2 trillion of borrowed, unfocused, unprioritized spending on top of the $4.5 trillion that we spend every year. And that's what he did last year. And he was just held back from doing another $5 trillion. By uh, unhappiness by Joe Manchin. So, so you do well, believe he, that the
9: COVID relief spending helped to prompt this inflation? That it was it was overboard. I
10: do, I do, I do, I do, because uh, when you combine uh, that kind of fiscal stimulus concentrated in 2020 with the bipartisan COVID relief money plus what he added in 2021, you combine that with zero interest rates and 120 billion dollars of bond buying monthly by the fed you don't have you can't invent a more stimulative demand focused uh, and this is why larry summers and others economists were warning warning the biden administration that they were playing with fire when you mix that kind of fiscal policy and mm-hmm. we maintain that aggressive posture by the fed
9: so here we are uh congressman did did you want the fed to go further today or you like this 50 basis point decision
10: well, I think I think their decisions to – I would have gone sooner, and we you and I have talked about that. I won't pick up our time today. To I understand. I would have started sooner and tethered sooner. But 50 uh, is good, and I think getting the balance sheet down. But they're going into uh, – have a very uh, difficult period because they waited so long, and I wish them the best, and I hope that it works out <laughs> for the whole country, that we well, have a soft landing.
9: Yeah, well – I did you hear Janet Yellen yesterday talking about this? A soft landing, she says, uh, will involve some luck uh, on the <laughs> yeah. part of the Fed. I believe she said a combination. Uh, what was the quote? The Fed will need to be skillful and also lucky. We know, Congressman, it hasn't happened that many times in history.
10: No. And, uh We're in an unprecedented situation I call it, as uh, Arthur Burns did, the anguish of central banking. When you wait too long and uh, the horse is out of the corral, you really have a hard time getting inflation back under control. That's why it's so challenging.
9: So why take 75 basis points off the table, as Jay Powell seemed to do today?
10: Well, I think Jay Powell uh, believes that uh, an important feature of the Fed is uh, projecting what they're going to do and stick with it and seeing how the results calibrate. And he is, I think, assessing is there any portion of this uh, 11 percent producer price uh, annualized uh, price increases that we're seeing and robust CPIs that could, in fact, be transitory. So I think he's doing this as a way to uh Watch market reaction very carefully as he shrinks the balance sheet and raises rates at the mm-hmm.
9: same time. Market loved it. Uh, I know the banker in you is watching the housing market. You're ranking member of the housing subcommittee. And so I have to ask you about this part of the economy. Mortgage rates are rising. Uh, inventories though, are still historically low and nowhere in some markets. Is housing inflation not fixable through rate hikes,
7: Congressman?
10: Uh, no, and it's also uh, understated, as you know, in the CPI. And I've been calling uh, for that's going to be a driver in the CPI staying elevated all of 2021. And you've hit it, the March numbers are just out, home price appreciation. I think March year over year were 16.6%, 22 over 21, and that's up from 12 a year ago. So housing, and that's and also, it's equally robust in rental. And so I see housing prices staying elevated on top of the fact that we have uh, rising rates and low inventory. It's a perfect storm for high uh, house prices being sustained. And we have this thing we haven't seen before, Joe, which is people's reassessing where their house is and how much house to have because of the pandemic and this work from home, home move. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit of a curve in here, in that demand curve, that's going to be interesting to watch.
9: Well, you know the story around here and in a lot of areas. This is not a Washington, D.C. story. It was the same uh, going back over the last several months in markets up and down the east and west coasts in the heartland where people are putting down cash offers, no contingencies, don't even need to see the house, don't even need to look at the house uh, because it's that competitive. Gallup released a poll today showing only 30 percent of adults – think this is a good time to buy a home, which is the lowest since the late 70s, Congressman, 1978. When does that materialize in the market? I know historically you get a big sort of gasp of buying when rates start going up and then you start to potentially see weakness. Is that your expectation?
10: It is my expectation, but I think uh, that uh, assessment of people moving because they have more job flexibility and the fact that we have $2 trillion in the economy that's excess reserves out there, households have over $2 trillion of extra money from pandemic, from savings, from not taking trips during the pandemic. So that is fueling down payment demand, plus people moving from high-cost areas to low-cost areas, people moving from California to Arkansas, people moving from Connecticut to Florida. Uh, that plays into more buying power, even in the headwinds of a 16% price increase and a higher mortgage payment.
9: Wow. I'll tell you, I, could you imagine being a banker again right now? How do you manage a market like this?
10: Well, uh, I've been, I started my career in 1979 and was a bond trader. So, uh, I've done it in every cycle and people will be out there and they will make money. I had my first mortgage was in Dallas and it was in the sevens.
9: I was going to ask you, what, what was the rate?
10: Yeah, it was in the seventies and early the early uh, eighties, and so look, people get married; they have to have a house. People yeah. cope with this, but it's how you. That's why I'm worried that that this inflation is not transitory, and it's going to be a tougher job for our monetary policy leaders.
9: Well, you know, a lot of people have 2007 uh, in their minds here, Congressman. I don't know if you do as well, but at, at a certain point, are we talking about a bubble? Is is this is this going to be risky for people buying homes right now?
10: You know, I don't think so because of the liquidity and because we don't have uh, the speculation in the market. We don't have those kinds of financial instruments. You're seeing people pay over listing price for a house that they want, but they're not buying five of them. You know, we had craziness between 2005 and 2007, particularly in recreational real estate areas like Florida. Mm -hmm. So I'm not seeing that kind of speculation. What I'm seeing is just good old fashioned Uh, government-driven demand that's boosted prices, created inflation, and that's now being reacted to by higher uh,
9: interest rates. And we need to build more houses. Congressman French Hill, Republican from Arkansas, always a pleasure to spend some time with you and appreciate your insights today, Congressman.
2: Salesforce.
9: I want to bring in Heather Boucher to add a different voice to this conversation, joining us from the White House, a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisers. Heather, thanks and welcome back to Bloomberg Radio.
0: Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Joe.
9: I've got to start with inflation on this Fed day, of course. Uh, Heather, the biggest interest rate hike since 2000. I know you see the Fed as independent, but are you happy? uh, Is the economist in you happy to see the Fed get more aggressive now?
0: Well, you know, we don't comment on Fed policy. But here's the thing. It is the Fed's job to cope with inflation. That's in their mandate. And they're taking the steps that they need to take. And we all know that inflation has been high and it's been a challenge. There's a, a number of things that the president um, has the capacity to do to deal with inflation, things like making sure the supply chains work and making sure that markets function as they should through making sure that they're competitive and doing what he can to lower gas prices through this crisis in the Ukraine. But the Fed also has to play its role. And so that's you know That that is what they did today.
9: Yeah, they're certainly at it. And, and I know the goal is to get inflation down. Uh, but of course, there's a tough record when it comes to soft landings here. I was really struck by Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's remark uh, this week said the Fed will need to be skillful and lucky, but it is possible. Um, do you worry about a recession being unavoidable? This is the big question right now in Washington, as you know, Heather.
0: Well, you know, I'm an economist, and I get up almost every day worried about whether or not there's going to be an extra session. I believe I have a book um, that I co-authored with some folks called that. Um, (laughs) This is an ongoing, ongoing concern. But, you know, here's the thing. The administration and Congress have done everything they can to shore up um, businesses and families and communities to weather this crisis of the pandemic and, you know, and to make sure that we get through this crisis um, caused by Putin's unprovoked war in the Ukraine. So there's a there's a lot of. issues on the horizon because of those, but we have seen that the economy is resilient. We've seen that we have the tools now to better cope with new variants of the pandemic, and we've seen that even in the face of, you know, uh, ebbs and flows of the pandemic, the labor market has remained quite strong, and we've seen that, you know, even as there have been challenges in growth, we're seeing some strong underlying fundamentals. So um, all of that gives me hope that we are on a a stable path in terms of at least jobs and investment. And that's where the real economy is. Do you have a sense of how
9: long the consumer can keep this up uh, just based on the savings rate, based on what we've been seeing the last couple of quarters? Spending just seems to continue no matter what, what happens to inflation here. When does demand destruction begin?
0: Well, you know, household balance sheets are in in relatively good shape because families were kept whole during the crisis and because we brought the unemployment rate down. So, you know, those 7.9 million folks that have a job now that didn't when Joe Biden took office, those folks are all out there earning a living and they're spending that money. They're doing what Americans do. So that that does create a lot of resilience um, uh, throughout the economy and and for families.
9: The president spoke today about lowering deficits, deficit reduction as a way also uh, to fight inflation. Heather, here's what he said.
6: Bringing down the deficit is one way to ease inflationary pressures in an economy where a consequence of a war and gas prices and oil and food and it all, it's, it's a different world right this moment because of Ukraine and Russia. Can you help our
9: listeners do the math on this a little bit? What is what is a trillion and a half dollars in deficit reduction, which I believe is what we're talking about here? Uh, these 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 new estimates from the Treasury. What does that equal in inflation reduction? Is it possible to know that?
0: <laughs> well, that is a, it's a great question. You know, let me start by noting that the reason that we are seeing this reduction in the deficit is in large part because of the success of the president's policies, because of the success of growth, right? 2021 saw this you know, uh, record pace of um, growth in the U.S. economy, uh, growth faster than any point since the 1980s, and we saw this um, sharp uptick in jobs and a sharp you know, downtick in the unemployment rate, down to 3.6%. So does that growth that creates created the tax revenue that means that the deficit is now coming down more than it would have been otherwise. So some of what the president's talking about with the inflation busting is that, um, you know, as folks make more money, as as businesses sell more, some of that income is going into the federal government and, yeah. and it's um, helping us pay off the debt, which, you know, mind you, we haven't done anything to pay off the debt since 2016. The last administration didn't pay down a penny, and now we're going to be able to do some of that. So that's pulling some money out of the economy. But importantly, um, it means that we aren't adding to the – that the the administration is really focused on making sure that we're shoring up the economy for the long term, but not adding quick hit stimulus.
9: Heather, you talked about your writing. Uh, You've written about how inequality constricts our economy. And I have to ask you about a major story this week that could have – real economic implications, and that is the, the possible overturning of Roe v. Wade. This is not something that you and I would normally be talking about. But here we are today, Heather, and we've had several economists tell Bloomberg that this, this threatens to reverse decades of economic gains by women, especially lower-income Black and Hispanic women. How worried are you about this? What would it actually mean for our economy if the court rules in this way?
0: Well, as an economist, I'm extremely worried. One of the things that we saw over the course of the pandemic was that um, women, especially caregivers, had a tough time, you know, is um, even if they had the opportunity to telecommute, they had children, you know, if you had children at home, those children needed to be cared for, child care centers shut down, schools yeah. shut down. We saw how hard that was and that people couldn't get to work. If you don't have care, you can't get to work. Um, denying women the right to choose. Um, and to have reproductive freedom means that you are denying them the ability to decide how they're going to spend their time and whether or not they'll be able to participate fully in the labor market. There's actually a lot of economic research out there now that shows that um, reproductive rights do give women that economic opportunity um, and, indeed, um, being forced to carry a child, uh, can can lead to economic harms because of the losses from jobs right. and and the like. It can it can lead to you know it, it's it's as important as other kinds of debt or bankruptcy in 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 uh, limiting women's economic security. And so this is really about people being able to have choices in their lives. So does this and start the, a new I conversation?
9: Wanted... Uh, I'm sorry to interrupt Heather. A new conversation about how to support women if this in fact becomes. The Supreme Court's rule.
0: Well, it, it's a, it's a it's a it's a conversation that has been ongoing right? There are now 11 states in the country that provide paid family medical leave. There has been a national dialogue about whether or not families need a child tax credit, Mm -hmm. whether or not families need um, access to increased support for child care and pre-K. The president has been on the forefront of pushing forward with an agenda around care to support families and particularly um, to help uh, mothers and uh, caregivers uh, cope with um, you know, the, the daily everything of dealing with getting to yeah. your job and caring for a family. And I think those have been the president's priority and they continue to be incredibly important, especially in the wake of this.
9: Heather Boucher, I appreciate your time today. Thanks for being with us on Bloomberg. Thank you. Nowhere else you are going to hear two conversations like that together, never mind, followed by this panel as we bring in Bloomberg Politics contributors, Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis. Uh, Jeannie, I'm not sure where to begin here on the inflation front. The White House is deferring to the Fed, as always. Don't want to comment on what the Fed is doing, uh, but we got 50 basis points today, and it just so happens the president went out with a, a speech of his own about deficit reduction. Is this the best the administration can do to win over people on this issue?
3: You know, listening to Heather Boucher, I think she should be out making the argument that the White House needs to make. I mean, hmm. her cogent argument about the impact, the economic impact on women is exactly what the, the administri- administration rather needs to say. I do think the president is smart to point to the deficit. It is incredibly important for them to point out, as he said, the hypocrisy on the other side, talking about <sighs> the deficit, not pushing it down. But also, it is a message to Joe Manchin because Joe Manchin has been going out and saying it's all about inflation. It's all about the deficit. And so Biden also needs to talk to him. So I think it's a smart argument, but I'm not sure it's going to change the hearts and minds of Americans as you look at the latest polls.
9: So I know nobody cared about the deficit, Rick Davis.
7: Oh, Republicans care about the deficit. Don't count <laughs> yourself out. Uh, uh, look, we haven't had a long time since Republicans cared about the deficit, and it's refreshing to see a Democratic president who just spent $4 trillion in public works programs and and relief uh, funding uh, to be talking about the deficit. But look, I mean, that's why you have growth. Growth makes mm. up for a lot of bad public policy. And in this case, uh, the president has taken advantage of that. And so they've gone out of their way uh, yeah, to
9: remind everybody that Donald Trump never reduced the deficit.
7: Never reduced the deficit, but he did create a lot of the economic growth that uh, uh, was already in place when when Joe Biden took over. And I think. You know, they both deserve credit. I mean, I think the Bush, the, the Trump tax cuts, you know, uh, helped fuel economic expansion. in a time of COVID was really one of the worst, and uh, and Biden didn't do anything to get in the way of that. So uh, it's not like he raised taxes and put more, you know, breaks on the economy. Um, so it's, it's, it's actually refreshing on a day when the Fed is raising interest rates to have a conversation about, you know, yeah. the— federal government's actually been able to pay okay. back some of its deficit, So, so I'm getting two uh, thumbs I, I up, up here from positive. you guys. This is, all, yeah, yeah I,
9: I I understand. OK, you're setting me straight here, uh, Jeannie. But, you know, about half the speech, he he veered into this MAGA agenda uh, portion of the address, talking about what Rick Scott is proposing. and even sounded kind of upset at one point where he's thumping the, the podium and yelling about uh, the, the Social
6: Security. I'll let you listen under this new plan this tax plan the ultra MAGA agenda While big corporations and billionaires are going to pay nothing more The working-class folk are going to pay a hell of a lot more and it goes further than that This extreme Republican agenda calls for Congress. Now, this is I'm not making this up either. You ought to really think about this It requires a vote if it were to pass every five years the Congress would have to vote to reinstate or eliminate Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. Social Security is something seniors have paid in for their whole life. And it has to be reauthorized. What are we doing uh,
9: with this messaging here, Jeannie? Uh, the, it was, was, that a, was that a poke uh, at, at Mitch McConnell? Why are we bringing up Rick Scott's proposal when you're up there talking about your own achievements?
3: You know, the two arguments Democrats need to make on the campaign trail, the one Heather Boucher made about women and this one, keep talking about Rick Scott's plan. There's a reason that Mitch McConnell said to Rick Scott, shut up, essentially, because <laughs> that is deadly for Republicans. And the president nailed it today in talking about that. They want to so- show that they are fiscally responsible. They want to talk about the GOP 2017 tax law, and they want to talk about Rick Scott's tax plan because nothing's going to get seniors out to vote for Democrats like yeah, the threat right. of Rick Scott's plan.
9: But Mitch McConnell doesn't want Rick Scott's plan, uh, right, Rick? Was this also just kind of a broadside at, uh, against Mitch here from the other side of Pennsylvania Avenue, knowing that Rick Scott would like to be majority leader?
7: No, I think, uh, really, they've figured out uh, what we've been talking about for some time, Joe, that they've got to nationalize this election. Uh, if the election's held on the terms that we're going into this weekend, they're going to get slaughtered. And so uh, I think Biden rightly is fixated on, you know, this ultra-maga policy, Trump policy, uh, and they're going to try to uh, nationalize the election. And and obviously, look, Rick Scott gave himself a sitting duck Award. I mean, you know, he puts out this insane policy that only he endorses. Uh, and But as policy director of the caucus in the Senate, you know, right. that's his job.
9: And his job to get people reelected. Uh, Rick and Jeannie with us for the hour, our signature panel on Sound On. Boy, we've covered a lot already, and we have a lot more to go here. If you were watching last night, the president may be talking about the MAGA agenda, but J.D. Vance won. This is Bloomberg. It was a very good night for J.D. Vance, which means it was a very good night for Donald Trump. They wanted to write a story that this campaign would be the death of Donald Trump's
7: America First agenda. Ladies and gentlemen, it ain't the death of the America First agenda.
9: J.D. Vance wins with a commanding lead, a convincing turnout here. What, eight, nine points over Josh Mandel, defeating six candidates in all, thanks in large part. As we've discussed here on Sound On, uh, to his endorsement by Donald Trump, brought him out from the middle back of the pack, made the whole difference in the outcome of this race. And so he sets himself up, I should say, for a race against 10-term congressman Democrat
7: Tim Ryan. Average people working their rear ends off, trying to make ends meet, fighting, biting, scratching, pinching, clawing, right? It's about economic freedom for them. Climb into the top, enough money to have a vacation, enough money to pay the bills, enough money. That's economic freedom. That's what this campaign is about.
9: An easy win for Congressman Ryan as he was appealing to blue-collar voters in the state. We'll see who is better at that now in the general election. And we're joined again to talk about it by Bloomberg's Mark Nick who's been living on the campaign trail and was deep in this campaign, deep in this race in Ohio, was at several Trump rallies that brought us to this point. Mark, welcome back. I guess the Trump brand uh, is very much still alive.
5: Yeah, people were watching to see whether Donald Trump's endorsement had still had the power to, in this case, lift a candidate like J.D. Vance from, as you said in your intro, the middle of the pack to mm-hmm. to victory. And it looks like that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, J.D. Vance ran a a good campaign that put him in a position to take advantage of the Trump endorsement, uh, certainly. But um, I don't think there's any way to read the the results other than that. Trump's endorsement got him over the finish line.
9: Not just that, but I mean, to take that take out Mandel uh, by a convincing margin was significant, right? They were in a couple of polls. They were within points of each other.
5: They were. And and, uh, as, as you said, it didn't turn out to be all that close. Although, uh, it was a multi candidate field and, and people yeah. weren 't sure exactly how it would turn out um, because in this case thirty three percent won um, the, the primary even though it was a comfortable lead over mandel um, and now we're facing a an interesting general election race we are um, because as you as you mentioned um, tim ryan from from the Youngstown area is a it's so an old industrial area, um, steel mills uh, that have, are long since gone. And it's an area where there were formerly Democrats, uh, predominantly, who in the age of Trump became Republicans. They went all in on Trump and his economic message. And uh, Tim Ryan is trying to sort of adopt that approach, where uh, his whole campaign has been about you know economic uh, issues affecting working-class voters, mm-hmm. uh, to the extent that uh, J.D. Ryan at his election night party last night said, uh, Ryan is running as a Trump Democrat, is how he put it. Um, so we're sort of setting up an interesting <laughs> fight in Ohio between sort of the competing brands of, of yeah. economic populism.
9: Yeah. So you've got a conservative populist here uh, running against a moderate Democrat who likes yoga. How does that play in 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 the new Ohio? Well, this is what we're going to find out
5: because Ohio has been, you know, forever a, a sort of the quintessential swing state, a purple battleground state. Um, but uh, under Trump, it, it it feels like it's it's become more Republican. Trump won the state twice by yeah. uh, eight percentage points, uh, and the feeling is, you know, the the Republican has an advantage starting out uh, in in the general election. JD Vance, um, but we're going to see because Tim Ryan is going to uh, produce a campaign that really focuses on these economic, you know, working class issues, kitchen table issues, mm-hmm. um, and try and you know hold Democrats who you know might be uh, in the past, you know, susceptible to, to going over to the Republican side, uh, try to keep them in the democratic column and, and still win a statewide race in Ohio.
9: Find his column on the terminal, Mark Niquette all over this. We appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for being with us on sound on as we bring the panel back in on this. I do want to get insights from both Rick and Jeannie. Uh, Rick, you've seen Ohio change over the years. Uh, how would you describe it now?
7: You know, back to the beginning, uh, you know, when we were campaigning there in 1980 with Ronald Reagan, we were looking for those same kind of, you know, working class, Steele County uh, uh, Democrats to become Republicans. And and Ronald Reagan had a lot of success. Uh, We then moved into sort of the suburban mode. And with the uh, state of Ohio, you have, you know, a dozen media markets, you know, half a dozen major cities. Suburbs matter there. And Republicans... Drank from the victory cup more often than not because they were able to mobilize suburban voters. Now we're right back to those same, you know, white collar or blue collar workers in the, you know, collars of those cities, no longer the suburbs, uh, really uh, trying to put together a a victory. And, you know, look, I I think it goes without saying, one of the things that's interesting about this election is that even though Vance won by a handy margin over Mandel, a vast majority of Republicans voted against him. And the question is, has he had enough transgressions against Trump in the past to sort of ward them off? He needs all those Republicans yeah. to be on his coalition. Absolutely. And I'd say the first order of business for him is going to be consolidation.
9: He needs those Republicans, Jeannie. And as we just discussed uh, in, in, uh, in a prior conversation this hour, this abortion issue uh, could, in fact, disrupt the, the way things go in the suburbs. What do you see happening in the general
3: You know, it could. I am not convinced yet. I think we really don't know yet. I am not convinced that it is going to be the winning issue for Democrats. I think it can be motivating. They do need to get women out. They need to take back some of these suburban Republican women that they had in 18 and 20. So it could be useful for that. The most important thing, though, is going to be the economy and inflation. And the most important thing is going to be that Democrats are able to show that the republican candidates nominated are extreme and that's what they're working to do with people like vance
9: rick and jeannie are going to come back in a moment you know donald trump had a big night all 22 of his endorsed candidates in ohio and indiana won their races but there's one republican governor who looks at things very differently and he's calling out donald trump setting up what could be an interesting presidential campaign that's
2: next
4: Top throw 2 is like no other course 2 420 foot vertical speedways 3 launches all right let's talk strategy You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio.
9: It's no coincidence that President Biden is heading for Ohio on Friday. Right now that we have a race, a general election, he can actually start getting into this. Push Tim Ryan, promote the computer chip plant that Intel is building near Columbus. Right. You can already hear the speech. Let's reassemble the panel now with Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Chansano and Rick Davis. It was not just J.D. Vance who won a Republican primary last night. Rick, all 22, as I read, of the candidates endorsed by Donald Trump in Ohio and Indiana, won. So has he proven the skeptics wrong this cycle or do you need to see more?
7: Well, um, Certainly is a good first outing and, and I think we will be seeing more, right? There are other candidates who are gonna be running in the month of May and we're gonna see a net effect. Obviously his endorsement has paid off in, in in Ohio. But it's not necessary. I mean Mike DeWine, who's a popular governor of Ohio, certainly wouldn't be or Ohio certainly wouldn't be uh called a Trump Republican, yeah. uh probably perform better than the rest of that kind of field. So uh there, there it isn't the only path to victory. What do you
9: think about this, Jeannie? What are Democrats saying about Trump now this day after? Here we go again.
3: Yeah, I I mean, I think they have to recognize that he is the leading figure, the loudest voice. And certainly he his his, you know, endorsements do matter. He was able to push Vance over the finish line. But let's not forget, for most of those endorsements were not terribly risky. Probably the riskiest one was Vance. And he clearly Mm -hmm. got that. And I don't think we should forget the amount of money that Peter Thiel put into that Mm -hmm. race. Donald Trump Jr. and Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson were all out way ahead ahead of of President, uh, former President uh, Trump. And that money mattered. And I'm curious to see in Arizona, if, uh, you know, Trump endorses masters following Teal there as well.
9: Well, I guess that's why I ask Rick, if you need to see more, you know, we've got not just Arizona coming, we've got Pennsylvania, we've got Georgia, and and these could all uh, break in different ways.
7: That's right. Uh, it could be a mixed bag. Uh, I doubt if it's going to be what we're talking about you know, later is a repudiation of Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. But he's going to lose um, uh, some of these races and we will obviously point those out. But but as G- Jeannie says, he's a factor and he's going to be a factor. Um, but I would say that all these candidates sort of circling around him to get a nomination to get through the primary is just the one step. Uh, This politics is a Texas two step. You got to you got to land that general election victory. (laughs) And there's a big foot to drop one big boot that's still coming our way. And that's the the January 6th commission. And that could be uh, difficult for sort of Trump style politicians to want to talk about the former president after that.
9: Well, look, we saw what happened in Virginia, Uh, Jeannie. There is another recipe that got Glenn Youngkin elected. It did not involve Donald Trump. Some of the issues may have overlapped. But, my God, we talked up and down about this. He never showed up himself. He never did a rally on a stage uh, with Glenn Youngkin. Uh, So... What's going to be the national recipe, or isn't there such thing?
3: You know, part of the reason I've always argued that Yunkin was able to do that—he did not have to go through this primary process that Vance and the others in Ohio have had to do—and huh. so that is a huge difference. He, his focus was on the general, so I think the big comparison is going to be: What do people like Vance do when they get once, do once they get to the general? And I would say I give Tim Ryan a lot of credit. Obviously, no competition to speak of, really, out there. Correct. But he's been to all eighty-eight. Counties, so far, as he likes to talk about, and his focus has been on the middle class manufacturing and ec- economics. He has an uphill battle, but his focus is exactly right China manufacturing and those issues because that's what the voters out there care about.
9: Enter Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, of course, the Republican governor of Maryland, not a Trump fan, Trump is not a fan of his. everyone knows that, but he had a big speech at the at the Reagan Presidential Library uh, this week. To deliver what the Washington Post described as a tough love speech to his fellow Republicans, calling the Trump era the party's worst in generations and pitching his vision of cross party appeal as the only way forward. The words of Aaron Cox. I want you to hear what he actually said uh, because, you know, he went for it. There's no pulling punches here and then have you both uh, respond. Here's Governor Larry Hogan. A party
8: that lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections, and that couldn't even beat Joe Biden, is desperately in need of a course correction. The truth is, the last election was not rigged. It wasn't stolen. We simply didn't offer the majority of voters what they were looking for. January 6th was not enthusiastic tourists misbehaving, It was an outrageous attack on our democracy, incited by the losing candidate's inflammatory false rhetoric. The Last four years were the worst four years for the GOP since the 1930s, even worse than after Watergate, when Ronald Reagan had to rebuild the party from the ashes. We lost the White House, the Senate, the House. We lost governor's seats. We lost state legislative bodies. You know, Trump said we'd be winning so much we get tired of winning.
9: Well, I'm tired of our party losing. Whew. Okay. I don't know when uh, the Trump statement comes out uh, or he gets a nickname or whatever, but, boy, he hit all of the notes in, in that passage there, Rick Davis. I, I, look, I know that he's talked about as a presidential contender. He's thinking about running. I guess he's waiting to see what Trump does here. But is is this going to turn into – uh you know a, a divided republican party where you've got the the sort of post trump folks and then you've got the the maga folks on the other side or or is larry hogan going to end up being fringe this cycle
7: uh well I, the two aren't mutually exclusive right you you can see a division that's been opening up since you know donald trump got elected president really within the republican party um uh and 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 that may or may not you know, depending upon where uh, uh, Governor Hogan presents himself, uh, put him on the fringe. I mean, he is a pretty moderate Republican sure. by any normal Republican standards. And yet the, 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 the point I think he's trying to get at is there's an opening here uh, with Trump's declining popularity, even though he's helping to win primaries. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he doesn't show up as a strong national candidate right now in most of the polls. And even members of his own administration and people who worked for him in the past in the elections aren't prepared to walk down that presidential road again with him. And so I think the more that gulf is created by people like Larry Hogan showing up at the Reagan Library and talking truth to power um, is, I think, a healthy dialogue right now for the Republican Party.
9: Was he correct in what he said?
7: Sure. I hate losing, too. I mean, the reason I got into politics is because I like the I like the chances of winning and and, and hated losing. And and so, you know, when 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 you get elected president, you're the you're the head of the party. And when you lose the Congress and you lose the Senate and then you lose a run for the presidency. um, Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a pretty bad track record to claim you want to come back and say, hey, let's do this all over again. Right.
9: Jeannie, does that make you more nervous, the idea of running against Larry Hogan? or Trump in 24.
3: Well, first of all, I was so excited to hear Larry Hogan because to me it means we are in invisible primary, money primary time, 2024, (laughs) here we come. So as a political junkie, I'm so excited. But beyond that, um, you know, I do think that obviously Hogan makes some really good points. I mean, Trump was, uh, you know, I just think back to that first debate with Joe Biden when Chris Wallace was sitting there with his mouth wide open. He lost this. He did this to himself. Just look at these endorsements he's been making. Many of these endorsements are simply because the person embraced Stop the Steal. He is a backward-looking person at this point as a candidate. That's never a winning message. So that is positive for the Republican Party, if Larry Hogan get this message out there. And it's a problem for Democrats. Democrats would like nothing more than Donald Trump back on Twitter, back talking as much huh. as possible, because as, you know, James Carville said, you'd show the crazy and people, even if they don't huh. love the Democrat or the other candidate, they're going to go in the other direction. And so that's but the I Republicans,
9: think- the, the Trump supporters, Jeannie, would say, hey, look at this morning. J.D. Vance won. We pulled him out of nowhere. Trump brand is alive
3: it's alive in the republican primaries look at the percentage of people going out you can't win a presidential election that way as as donald trump himself saw you've got to pull independents you've got to pull moderates you've got to pull women from the center and you can't do that with crazy and you can't do it with backward looking
9: well if look if larry hogan is making sense to uh to to moderate republicans uh rick that's a long walk from DeSantis, right? Never, never mind Donald Trump. Is there anyone else in the party who's getting attention on this level right now?
7: Uh, I think that the, most of the people who are getting attention right now really are more out of the Trump wing. And I think yeah. it's a it's a distinguishing feature because... Why would a bunch of Trumpers want to be looking like they're running for president if Trump's planning on doing it? Um, okay. I, I actually think that's more meaningful than Larry Hogan, who you would expect to oppose a guy mm-hmm. like Trump. But when you have people like DeSantis and others who served in Trump's administration going out there and saying, hey, I'm interested in being president, who's Donald Trump? Um, that's when you're that going to a meaningful gesture inside a party.
9: So, the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, and so forth, these are the Tom Cottons. You're waiting to hear more from them.
7: Not really. They are actively out pursuing okay. presidential campaigns. As Jeannie said, the season is in full bloom now. <laughs> it, 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 the, they're lining up donors, they're going to Iowa New Hampshire. They're Where's talking, Mike they're Pence? Putting their list together. Uh, Mike Pence is uh, he's out of his bunker now, and uh, he's he's probably celebrating with his brother who did get a Trump endorsement and got nominated yesterday in Ohio. Uh, and uh, and and I think you know looking for his lane. they They've all got their their strategists looking for which lane can I win a nomination from, And none of them are in the Trump lane right now.
9: Rick Davis, Jeannie Shanzano with us on the fastest hour in politics. If you showed up late, Subscribe to The Sound On Podcast, wherever you find your podcasts. Meet you back here tomorrow. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg.
1: Join global business leaders and investors at the Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit, returning to Singapore on July 31st. Take part in solutions-driven discussions on how to drive business value and unlock opportunity while remaining nimble in times of change and greater ESG accountability. Learn more at bloomberglive.com slash sustainablebizsingapore. That's bloomberglive.com slash sustainablebizsingapore.